0: Welcome to episode 3 of Marketplace Mechanics, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of two-sided marketplace businesses. I'm James McCauley, and I've been obsessed with marketplaces ever since I began building a marketplace for booking musicians, Encore, back in 2014. Marketplaces are notoriously difficult to get right, which is what makes them so fascinating. And in this podcast, you'll hear the stories of the people and teams building successful marketplaces across every industry. In this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Needham, a serial entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Headbox, a marketplace for booking venues. I really enjoyed recording this interview with Andrew. We talked about the first days and weeks of building Headbox, the strategies Andrew adopted when launching the platform, how to balance your team's efforts between solving problems for customers and solving problems for suppliers, the benefits of building a SaaS-enabled marketplace, and much more. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to get an email every time a new episode comes out, then you can subscribe at marketplacemechanics.com and follow on Twitter at MarketplacePod. You can also follow me on Twitter at TheJamesMcCaulay. Now, although I recorded this introduction at home, The interview itself was actually recorded in the brand new podcast studio in Runway East's co-working space in Soho. The studio is absolutely fantastic and it makes this episode sound 10 times better than previous ones. If you're interested in booking the studio for your own podcast, simply search for The Pitch Room on headbox.com. So, let's get this show on the road. So I'm here with Andrew Needham, the CEO and founder of Headbox, which is a marketplace for booking venues. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming in. First of all, what is Headbox? How do you describe Headbox in 30 seconds?
1: Well, hi, James. Thank you very much for, uh, for, having, for having me here. So just to, just to explain what Headbox is, it's an online marketplace for inspiring meeting, offsite, and, and event spaces. So very simply, we connect corporate bookers who are looking for brilliant spaces from the iconic to the untapped and unusual uh, spaces that are out there in London. We connect them directly with the owners of those spaces through our platform. And what Headbox did, which was a first, was we just made the whole process of searching, booking and paying for a space completely automated on our platform. And we were the first to do that.
0: So what did that process look like pre-Headbox? What are the problems that you've solved?
1: So the problem before we came along was that bookers would have to go through an intermediary usually a traditional listing agency who were really just using the website as a way of forcing bookers to pick up a phone and hand over their brief to them so that they then took complete control away from that booker and then they then rang around and spoke to their limited supply of venues that they'd probably done a deal with uh, before then coming back to the booker so it was a very manual very inefficient and very time-consuming process so by connecting bookers directly with the owners of those spaces uh, on a platform was uh, was you know was a big thing because it completely disintermediated those uh, those traditional uh, venue websites.
0: I mean that whole story sounds so familiar to (laughs) us at Encore booking musicians it's exactly the same in the music industry you have some agents or agencies and all they want is to get you on the phone so that they can sort of take over that booking and give you access to a limited range of their sort of favoured acts. Um, it's not transparent, it's not, you know, it's not efficient. Um, and that's such a similar story to other marketplaces as well. I think so many marketplaces spring up to disintermediate that, that middleman and to make the process much simpler, just connecting supply and demand rather than going via um, an agent who's passing messages. Yeah, so, you're right.
1: It's very similar.
0: It's very similar. So as far as like, Headbox's history is concerned, where did this idea come from? What, what did the early days of Headbox look like?
1: So the idea started from my previous company. So I set up a company called Face, and that was a consumer research business. And we built that business to, to there was just over 60 of us we were in London, Hong Kong, Singapore and New York. And we had a lot of very interesting big corporate clients like Unilever, Coca-Cola, Nokia. Mm. And they wanted to find always amazing, brilliant spaces where they could get senior stakeholders together with what we called leading edge consumers to help solve brand problems. And it was during that process that I really uncovered two things. One was that we were always going to the same old space, and there these brands seemed to have their their favourites, hmm. and they weren't always the best places. There was always something not not quite right to to suit the brief. So what? So one was that there was a complete lack of imagination. That that was sort of point one around that, and the second was the whole process of trying then to to book that space and pay for it was uh, was very very complicated. And if you wanted them to go and find something that was uh, a bit more original, a mm. bit off the beaten track, just finding where those spaces were. And again, following through with b- booking and payments was, was very difficult. So I think they were the two things, just a complete lack of imagination. There was no, no way of sort of opening up all of, you know, th- there are so many amazing spaces in London. Uh, obviously there are ones that we all know about, but there are loads that we don't. And there was no uh, easy way of finding them all in one place. And secondly, I think, as you say, there was just the, the, the process of, of was just not not automated, very inefficient and manual. And it was those two things that I noticed and I thought there must be a, a simpler, better way of, uh, of doing this. And so at that point, when you thought
0: there must be a better way, what did you do next?
1: So what did I do next? The first <laughs> thing? Well, the first thing I did when I had when I had the idea and and the idea also came because with that face we launched Pulsar which was this social data analytics plat- platform we launched that to an enterprise uh, to an enterprise uh, model and uh, it was and, and it, it was a SaaS driven um, platform by having done that I was thinking about about platform businesses mm. and I thought so what would be the platform business if we were looking at the events industry and that's where Thinking about it from that, plus noticing those problems, that I thought there must be a way, as you say, simple way of connecting those spaces through uh, d- directly with people that wanted them over a platform. And so the first thing I did was I went and go and look, went to go onto Google to see if there was someone in America who had done it. That's a good
0: strategy. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> the Americans thought, are always considered as being oh they are always step slightly a step ahead of us in terms of tech innovation. Not always true, but it's yeah, a good place and, to start.
1: And, and that was the and that was the first thing that I did. And, and I thought that if, if you go into Google and, the, and you see that, that someone has done this and they're in 20 American cities, then you're a bit late. And so when I, when I, when I did, there was a company called, called Peerspace who are in America. And they had just launched with this, uh, with this idea, particularly uncovering those sort of underutilized spaces, getting you really to think about, about spaces that don't, um, that don't rent out their space as their primary source of income. So thinking of of pubs, of restaurants, of cafes, Hmm. you know, even boats, tree houses, there were so many different types of of space that they were uncovering and opening up and bringing that to the corporate booker.
0: such a classic example of the sharing economy as well, taking underutilised space or underutilised assets, making them, you know, more useful for for the world. So you you saw Peer Space. Yes. You saw them doing things in America.
1: Yes. And they they just started. They'd only just started. They were, I think... Nine months, uh, you know, into this, when I when I thought, right, I now need to find a way of exiting from Face and Pulsar. So I'd sold that company, Mm. and uh, I was uh, now free to, to to move on. So it was a question of of just moving very quickly. I think I saw. I think yeah, originally, originally I did that. I think that was in 2000, sort of October, November 2014 and I had managed then to exit my company by March 2015, and that's then I, when I set on the journey to, to build the business.
0: That's pretty quick, that's a pretty yeah. quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. And so, who were your first hires? What did the team look like, and how did you go about acquiring supply and demand?
1: The first hires were focused on helping to sign up as many spaces as possible. And, and so the first four employees of Headbox, their focus was to sign up venues uh, running around London. We had a little uh, pod structure, you know, two teams of, of two people. One would be ringing up and, and getting meetings, and the other person would then go in and, and show them the platform. that We were signing them up to, obviously the platform hadn't launched, so we were signing them up to the, 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 the beta version, yep. which wasn't public. Mm. So, yes, yeah, so I stepped out on April the 1st and we had a 1,000 spaces on the platform by, I would say, the end of the summer. So that was hiring, the t- we hired, hired the team and had uh, the, f- the first MVP and a 1,000 spaces on the platform by beginning of September. I mean, that's an incredible turnaround to do that so quickly. And that sounds so familiar
0: to um, our story as well with Encore. We, we decided to attract musicians first and my, my co-founder and I, literally ran around music colleges in London, uh, hiring up as many uh, musicians as we could. Um, And for us, we actually spent the first 12 months just building out the platform. We were in beta as well. So we went sort of campus to campus, a little like Facebook did. And it was a private beta for the first 12 months. So you could only join if you had an email address from one of these music colleges. So you've got the 1,000 venues. Yeah. When do you turn on demand?
1: So that's really, that's really interesting. And I think that that's when, when you got the thousand venues and we then launched and we launched in beta because we just felt we wanted just to get the platform, wanted to get the platform out there as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible and then start kind of learning in in real time. And we wanted to give ourselves maybe that four or five month period before we really wanted to put the marketing, turn the marketing on. Uh, So that didn't really start, that didn't happen until like April, May in 2016. And it was during that early period we were just you know, learning, learning learning a lot. And I think that one of the things that inspires me to, in terms of being an entrepreneur and setting up businesses is that you never stop learning. And that's one of the things I love about Headbox, what's great about speaking to you. James, we just worked out you're 25, so I'm I'm uh, twice your age. <laughs> and, You've given uh, away both yeah. of our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm twice your age, but but I love uh, you know the average age of of that's you know the average age of Headbox is, is you know probably late 20s. But I think it's because you really uh, you can never stop learning, never stop learning from people that uh, are older than you, younger than you. Doesn't matter where where that learning comes from; mm. it can come from anywhere. And and I think in those early stages there was a, a, a lot. To learn, particularly on that demand side, I think generating the supply was relatively straightforward. Uh, it wasn't. It's, it wasn't a complicated sell. Signing up to a platform that was free, mm. and we had this uh, unique uh, approach that we were the first to bring that e-commerce model um, to to this space. The demand side was was more tricky, and particularly if you're not a marketeer by background, which I'm. I'm not a specific. I don't have a specific skill set. I'd say that I've got a. Uh, I'm a generalist. Mm so i think that was that was more tricky and i think in those early days and i think i don't know whether you found this as well but you're you're trying to establish what is the model what is the model that and the strategy that best fits this the sector uh, that you're in and you can apply you can apply business models and ways of doing things that might work in another sector but uh, you have to make that particular to your to your customers In the sector you're in And I think that takes That takes a bit of time That sounds so
0: familiar Mm. So my business partner and I James We're both musicians ourselves And I grew up in a family of musicians So we knew our supply Pretty well Mm. Uh, We were I guess You know Suppliers on our own marketplace Um, So we understood the problems Faced by them We understood what they wanted And we found it fairly straightforward To build good Like good tools for our musicians And to like you said To sell the vision of Encore to them. When it came to the customers, however, it was, it was learning every single day. It was trying lots of different things, uh, trying to uncover what really matters to a customer when they're booking a musician. And the assumptions we had three or four years ago turned out to be totally wrong. And we've learned so much in the last three or four years. So it sounds very
1: familiar. And you were talking about, just, just before we, we started uh, this, this, this conversation, the, the whole strategy that we applied around PPC. Uh, so understanding what, what what are those what are the what are the channels that um, that can give you the best uh, return on on your, on your bookings and and inquiries was not was not straightforward. Absolutely. When when you go when you go live and it's and it is a bit scary because once it goes live and and you kind of there was this sort of moment where you think you turn it live and you're thinking right thousands of people are now I've got this brilliant idea thousands of people are going to come to uh, are going to come to Headbox. And it doesn't. They, quite... might, they might have
0: come to Headbox, but when did they book? <laughs> Is a different question. Yeah, no, exactly. And you're
1: going kind to of waiting there. You're thinking, right? Well, I've got this brilliant idea. I'm yep. solving this massive problem. Yep. There should be loads of people that are coming to my website <laughs> on day one. Where are they? And it's not as simple as that. And I think that's what uh, that was the realisation. So we did we did um, we did focus a, a lot on the, on that demand side, and it wasn't until I think kind of the middle of 2016 where we had a lot of learning. I think we used, um, we worked with a with, with with an agency, and I think that was an experience because I think, and I don't know if you've seen this with some of the partners and agencies that that you've worked with with Encore, but there are a lot of agencies out there who, because they've not set up businesses, they've not done this, they've not been in the position that you're in or or I've been in, they do not know what they're talking about, and I found that in those in those in those early days. And when I look back on on what we've learned in terms of our digital marketing and the the knowledge that we've acquired and the experience that we've required, and you compare that to some of the things that I was being told or shared in those early days, mm. I think uh, was um, you know there was such a massive uh, chasm of uh, of knowledge and I think that just comes from doing you know you learn a you learn a lot by doing and when you've gone through all of the problems that are presented just on that demand side and that marketing side mm. and trying to solve them I think that you you realize how much how much you've learned that, that other people just don't know we have this expression at Headbots called you don't um you don't know what you don't know until you know it that's brilliant and and I know it's, it's just, and it, when we say it, it all makes us uh, particularly with the the, the the early members of the team it just makes us laugh because there are there are quite there are quite a few Few uh, few areas that that you just you just you just don't know until you've done it.
0: We have yeah, we have um, a similar thing actually. So you mentioned never stop learning, and that's Mm. exactly the wording of one of our core values. Mm. So we encourage everyone to constantly be um, upskilling themselves and investing in themselves, and we help them with that. But we also apply that to learning about our customers. Mm. So we realised last year, for example, we're talking to tens or like hundreds of customers every single day or every week. And we weren't categorizing that insight. We were getting these quotes from them, and they were telling us what frustrated them and what didn't. And so last year, I think it was in March, we just started a spreadsheet with pertinent quotes from our customers. If they mentioned something that they loved about Encore, if they mentioned something that they hated about Encore, it goes into a spreadsheet. And we now have, I think it's hundreds of rows in this spreadsheet. And we have quotes and so much insight from our customers. And when we're sitting as a team discussing what to build next or how we're going to design this part of the website, the customer's insight really trumps everything else. Whatever the customer has told us about their experience booking musicians is ultimately what matters, especially when you're an early stage marketplace and you don't perhaps have the extremely high volumes of traffic to run statistically significant A-B tests. You, you need to base so much of your decision-making on, on what the customer is telling you. So you've got your venues on the platform, you've switched on the marketing. I wanted to ask about some of the perhaps manual processes that you went through in the early days. Uh, Speaking to every marketplace founder, uh, there's always this veneer to the public that we've got a a brilliant platform and everything's automated. And then behind the scenes you find out that there are so many uh, manual and hacky processes. I heard my last guest uh, Jean-Michel from Le Salon ran his whole business from a spreadsheet for longer perhaps than people realized. Just an extremely good Google spreadsheet linked to lots of other Google (laughs) spreadsheets. Do you have any stories about manual processes in the early days that were happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain?
1: Oh, yes. Oh <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And, and I think that when, particularly when you're trying to, to automate uh, payments, and there's a lot of complexity, I think, when it, when it comes to the area that, that we're in because there are a number of, of variables Yep. And there are a number of customer needs, I think, along that user journey that we need to be uh, need need to be addressing that make it much more complicated than just buying a buying a, a bedroom, for example. Oh, yeah. Um so so the automation part of particularly on the payment side and the back end of that, yep. I think, is was the area that you just didn't see and customers didn't have to see. So mm. so that was our equivalent of the of the swan gliding across the uh, grinding across the lake, mm. looking uh, at the front end of, of headbox, we wanted to make that look as as beautiful and serene as possible, uh, while the you know the legs were <laughs> paddling <laughs> away furiously uh, uh, underneath. Yeah, and, uh, and and I think that makes sense because because you want that front end is is about attracting customers. It is about getting your customers, yeah. and then it's about uh, the the kind of back end part is about is about servicing then then servicing them. So a lot of our focus was. Was was on that front end, then as you as you start to scale, which which you would have seen, you then need to to, to switch and make the whole experience as seamless as possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we had a similar thing with payments yeah. as well. Yeah, we yeah. talked about lessons learned, and and we the way we tried to do payments at first turned out to be totally wrong. Um, and there were certainly a lot of manual processes going on behind the scenes to give customers the impression that everything was incredibly smooth on the surface. And the way we asked for payment as well was that we said please pay this booking fee and then agree to pay the musician, you know, off the platform. Uh, You know, it was never the end result we had in mind. We we now handle the whole payment from start to finish. So when we made the switch to handling payments ourselves and taking that whole payment and taking responsibility for the whole payment, there's one number, they pay it to Encore and Encore makes sure that that musician gets the money after the performance the approach we took in the early days just did not uh, did not scale. And we had so many confused musicians and confused customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that the approach we've taken now is, is much simpler for everyone. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. So let's talk about SaaS-enabled marketplaces. So I was just listening back to this uh, part of the episode while I was editing the episode, and I realized that we didn't explain what a SaaS-enabled marketplace is. So a enabled marketplace is not a marketplace enabled by Cheeky Attitude. SaaS stands for Software as a Service. And a SaaS-enabled marketplace is basically a marketplace that offers software to its suppliers or to its customers that can be used separately to the marketplace. Um, so, for example, OpenTable is a marketplace for booking restaurant tables. But they also built reservation software that these restaurants could use outside of the marketplace. And so that's what Assassin Enabled Marketplace is. It's a marketplace where buyers and sellers transact that also offers software to either suppliers or its customers. Now, back to the episode. You've described Headbox as uh, one of the first, I think the first saas Enabled Marketplace in the venues uh, industry. First of all, what is saas Enabled Marketplace? In your words,
1: well, it's really interesting because when we and I think we were just we were just touching on this again uh before before our conversation started, and I think I didn't know i didn't had never heard of this this expression a saas enabled marketplace when I first read started to to read some blogs about this, which was back in in two thousand and seventeen it described quite aptly mm. what we were pursuing as a strategy that we had started in two thousand and sixteen, the year a year earlier.
0: So you'd been building it without realizing it was, yes, you know, officially that, was the, that it was known called. A, yes, it was yep. known
1: as a, as a SaaS and an enabled an marketplace. Yep. and I think one of these blogs that I read said that there are there is you either start as a as a marketplace and then you bring um, SaaS elements to it, and, and broadly what that means is that you are developing tools mm-hmm. and maybe services that uh, for, you know for your customers that you can charge a, a recurring. Revenue stream for, and you can also start maybe as a SaaS platform that then adds a marketplace, or you start as a SaaS-enabled marketplace. Yeah. And I think we were very much in the ilk of we started as a marketplace. We thought that that uh, we could just take that Airbnb model and apply it to to this industry, and it was it was not as simple as that. And I think when we were talking about earlier about about how you build that um, the demand side. And once you start building the demand, how do you then um, how do you then build the, the response from the from the supply mm. and then circling it back? How do you build the demand and the supply and do those things in, in kind of equal steps? So yep. you really build that uh, momentum yep. within the marketplace, which makes what we do, I think, m- much more difficult than just doing a SaaS Platform. There
0: are two, yeah. There are two customers you've got with two, two, customers. Two, two needs. You're almost yep. building two separate platforms that have to somehow bridge together yep. to to handle that transaction. So I totally agree. I think yep. marketplace. I was told when we started Encore um, by an investor, um, she said. I don't know if you realise, but marketplaces are incredibly hard to build. And I said, yeah, I think I have a rough idea. I think I know it's going to be tricky. And years later, yeah, she was absolutely right. Marketplaces are incredibly difficult, but it's what makes them satisfying when you get them working.
1: Yeah, when you get them working. And I think that's, and so I think just coming back, you know, you talked about your focus on always learning and learning about your customers. And, and that really then comes that comes down to solving our customers' problems, both on the supply side and the demand side. And I think as, as those problems emerged, we realised that just the things that we'd been doing in the marketplace mm. perhaps were not the best way of solving those problems for either our, our demand customers or on the, on the supply side. And I think that is where we felt there were other ways of, of solving those needs. Again, software, software technology-based, Yeah. And um, and that's when I realized when I read this, I read this article had come up with the SEM uh, and, you know, acronym. And I thought Hmm. that's exactly what um, what what, what we've been doing.
0: And I think, yeah, when you're building those SaaS tools for both sides, especially on the supply side, um, it has two benefits for the suppliers who have joined your marketplace and perhaps aren't receiving the volume of bookings they were expecting or perhaps they're in one of your markets that's not so liquid. The tools that you build for them are what will keep them and and sort of engage them on the platform uh, where they might otherwise have have bounced and said, well, this marketplace isn't delivering bookings to me, so I'm going to stop investing Mm -hmm. my time in it. Mm -hmm. You can also use the SaaS tools as a recruitment tool. Mm -hmm. So if you are onboarding suppliers, you can say, we haven't switched on demand yet, but we've built this suite of tools for you that will make your life as a supplier so much simpler. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really smart approach and I'm really interested to see how you guys develop this over the next few years, which which leads on to the final section of our interview, actually, um, which is on on the vision for Headbox. I know this is something that you you think about every day. Mm-hmm. Where where do you think Headbox will be three years from now? So looking ahead to January twenty twenty two, what will Headbox look like, and what does the future of booking a venue look like?
1: So we're, so we're on a mission to reinvent the global events industry through through technology. And I think that is br- bringing that down to day-to-day. To to day. That is, as I say, about solving our customers' problems through through tech. And I think that's what really separates us from other players in this space. Mm. And I think the event, particularly the, when we talk about the corporate booking events uh, space, that where we're very focused on, uh, that uh, there is not a lot of um, IP or technology there. That really should be solving problems, um, that uh, uh, and, and automating them, and making things simpler, faster, and easier. Yeah. And I think we're very focused on that. And I think going back to the beginning of this conversation, it was about, and when we first started, Box was really finding what that model is and what's the 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 the, the strategy behind this this SaaS enabled approach that we're taking. And I think that uh, that we've got that, and we're proving that in the UK. So it is now about, I think. Ex- exporting this into um, into other markets and building scale. So that's what I would say our main focus in the three years is to is to is to start taking um, our, um, our 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 SaaS-enabled approach into other into other markets. And we're we're starting that in, in 2019, which makes this year you know re- really exciting.
0: That's incredibly exciting and i know that you as as a platform as a company you have already been pushing the boundary of what's expected in the venue space i was at a conference last week the london summer events show and i was talking to a london venue and they were so desperate to have a 3d headbox model mm-hmm. made of their venue and they i think they were talking about their venue and their venue had had a very basic sort of 3D photograph taken of some of the main spaces, but he was saying, you know, he was almost lobbying his manager to get one of these Headbox 3D experiences. Mm. And it, speaking to him and speaking to a few other venues about Headbox, it sounds like you are definitely regarded as the sort of the innovator in the industry at the moment, um, which which is you know incredibly exciting.
1: No, thank you, and I think that and I think that. And I think that where we started our journey very much around Headbox as a marketplace. I think that what uh, what will happen over the period of time is that we, we will we will become an event tech company mm. and be known as an event tech brand, uh, not just you know through uh, known through 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 the product lens, but but uh, as I say, the the problems that that we're we're solving that may exist beyond just what you see in in headbox.com mm. and and i think that's the journey that uh, that we that we're on we want to be the number one event tech brand in in europe and i think that that that's uh, that's our our that's our our, our ambitious goal and our, and our and our focus i mean the events tech space seems
0: like a space that is really just starting to Um, emerge properly i don't want to sort of be disparaging towards anyone in the industry already but it feels like in the last few years a lot of platforms and a lot of companies have started to realize that the way people book events and they book suppliers for events and find the spaces has been stuck in the past for such a long time whereas other more obvious verticals you know like getting a taxi or finding somewhere to stay Mm -hmm. have been attacked much earlier by companies like uber and airbnb so Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the events tech space is, is heating up as we speak, and I know a lot of other founders who are building marketplaces in food, in photography, in uh, you know, in music. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be to be building a platform uh, for events. And I guess my final question then uh, to wrap up the interview is: um, a lot of people listening to this mar- um, this marketplace mechanics podcast are building marketplaces themselves they're people like us they're other founders or they're aspiring founders people who have an idea for a marketplace or, or want to start one what has been the biggest lesson learned as far as building a two-sided marketplace is concerned and if someone came to you and said i'm about to start my own marketplace is there anything i should know about now what would you what would you say to them
1: <laughs> so i would say that uh, i would say that it is it is uh, it is going mu- to be much harder than you think because you've got two customers and those customers have both have problems and they sometimes have different problems that you need to try and solve so you're always being challenged with the question of where do I apply my resource yep. uh, to which customer do I uh, on on which side of the marketplace do I do I apply my resource first and I think my my Lesson is that you you have to apply what resource you have, uh, and maybe at different times and those early stages because you can't do both at the same time unless you've got the luxury of having raised uh, a huge amount of money at the get go to be able to do that. But if you haven't, then you need to, I think, really understand what those most important problems are you're solving for your customers. Solve one set of them first, and then move. To the to 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 the other other side to the other customer set and then try as you as you do that you'll start to build um, m- momentum and think about how you can connect those uh, both of your 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 customers and in, in, in what you're doing how what you're doing for one customer is going to really, help the other side of the marketplace and when you do the same on the other side how that's going to help the other customer set because I think that's how you start to build momentum and then you kind of get into this sort of virtuous circle Yeah. and when you get into that circle where what you're doing for one side is feeding into the other side of the marketplace and what you're doing on the other side feeds into the other yeah. you get this kind of internal momentum within the business that starts to take a life of its own and I think that's where you need to really uh, focus to getting to that, to that point.
0: That is so bang on, um, that and that again totally correlates with the lessons we've learned. I think looking from the outside in, other marketplaces, you perhaps think that these companies have been equally focused on supply and demand and have been bringing them up in tandem at the same time. But for us, there were periods of you know months where our whole team was focused on mm-hmm. the supply side of the marketplace because we knew that we'd spent you know the previous six months building a great customer experience, but now our suppliers were struggling to load their dashboard because the number of inquiries they had was higher than we'd expected so we'd spend a lot of time working with our musicians and then we would sort of swing the focus back and spend time for customers and it's 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 so difficult with a small team to do both at the same time but if you lift each one up and like you said if one feeds into the other you you get to that point where there's a flywheel Mm. where the growth almost feels easier once Mm. you get to a point where. Both parties know how to use your platform and it does solve the core problem. That's when things get really exciting. So, I totally agree with that. And I'm so grateful to you for coming in uh, to do this interview today, Andrew. So, if you want to look at Headbox online, it's uh, headbox.com. And yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a great interview.
1: Thanks for having me, James.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love to hear from you on Twitter. Actually, if you hated it, I'd also love to hear how you think it could be better. You can find the podcast on Twitter at MarketplacePod and you can find me at the James McCauley. If you'd like to check out the marketplace that I'm building with my team, Encore, you can find that at EncoreMusicians.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast on every single major podcast platform. It's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to get an email every time a new episode comes out, you can sign up to the mailing list at marketplacemechanics.com. If you'd like to appear in an episode yourself talking about your marketplace, or if there's a marketplace expert or founder that you'd like me to interview, then let me know. Please email me at hello at jamesmcauley.co.uk. Thanks again to Runway East for letting us record Marketplace Mechanics in their wonderful pitch room podcast studio in London. And that's everything for now.